Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, President Trump takes aim at the Affordable Care Act. They are not interested in stabilizing the marketplaces. They are not interested in in making it work better for consumers. Their goal is to, as much as they can, uh, make it seem that the marketplaces are doomed to fail. It's hard to view this as anything other than a direct attempt to hamper the markets and to hurt the ability to cover people. In this week's episode, health policy expert Ben Summers explains how two moves from the Trump administration could destabilize Obamacare and make it more difficult for consumers to find affordable insurance coverage. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, October 19th, 2017. I'm Noah Levin. And I'm Amy Montemiro. This week we'll be talking about recent action by the Trump administration that took aim at the Affordable Care Act. Last week, the president said the government will stop making cost-sharing reduction payments to health insurance companies. These payments are intended to subsidize plans offered to lower-income Americans under the ACA. And in a separate move, President Trump issued an executive order which would ease the rules and regulations for health plans offered under Obamacare and open the door for the creation of so-called association health plans. The move comes just weeks before the open enrollment period begins on November 1st. While the changes are not likely to affect plans offered during the upcoming enrollment, they could lead to higher premiums and co-pays and potentially destabilize insurance markets over the long term. To understand these moves from the Trump administration and their implications, I spoke with Ben Summers, Associate Professor of Health Policy and Economics here at the Harvard Chan School. Take a listen. President Trump took aim at the Affordable Care Act in two key ways, and I want to start with the decision to end the subsidies to health insurance companies. So can you just explain what these subsidies are and then what the impact of this is likely to be? It's interesting that the they really have become framed as a question of subsidies to the insurance companies. Their purpose is to make care more affordable for lower and middle income families. The idea is that the you know the ACA has these tax credits in place to help make premiums more affordable depending on your income. But once you get that coverage, we also worry that costs uh, can be a barrier. And in particular, if you are in a you know, lower middle income family, you buy coverage through the marketplace under the Affordable Care Act, you might face a deductible of several thousand dollars. You might have very large co-pays before you can use your care. And so the Affordable Care Act set up a system of cost sharing reductions that would make these plans more generous for these families and would make it easier for them to pick up their prescription drugs, to have doctor's visits, to pay for hospitalizations if they need it. Um, now, the way that the law chose to do that was by saying to the insurance companies, if you have uh, people in this income range, you have to provide that discounted care, and then we'll pay you back for it. So the money was never really intended to help the insurance companies. The goal of the money is to make care more affordable for, for families. But the way to make that done more seamlessly was that instead of having people pay it themselves and then try to get reimbursed by the government, the insurance company took care of it, and then the federal government paid the costs. But what happened was the law was drafted in a way that didn't guarantee that money uh, was going to be allocated by Congress. And so even though the law requires the insurance companies to provide these services for people, the question was whether uh, there was going to be the money paid back to them that they were essentially owed. And for several years, the Obama administration made these payments as members of Congress, the Republican leadership in Congress, said, well, you, you don't have the right to do that because the law didn't specifically say that we're paying that. 
And so they ended up in the courts for several years. It was going back and forth. And essentially what the Trump administration announced this week is uh, they're going to stop making the payments because they say they don't have the authority to do it. And it becomes up to Congress to decide. So the reality of this is that the insurance companies still have to cover it for people. They still have to provide these reduced cost sharing uh, or reduced cost sharing levels for, for these lower and middle income families but they don't get paid back for it at the end. And so if you're running an insurance company, this leaves you two pretty unpleasant options. One is to say, well, if the government's not gonna pay me back for it, but I still have to pay it, then I've gotta jack my prices up. And so we've seen some insurers say that they're gonna raise premiums by 20% if the government stops making these payments to them. The other option is simply to get out of the business, to say the marketplace is not a good place for us to operate. Without these cost-sharing subsidies, it's way too expensive. We don't like the political uncertainty that's going on right now. And this is the strongest signal to date, uh, building on a bunch of smaller steps that the Trump administration has taken, that they are not interested in stabilizing the marketplaces. They are not interested in, in making it work better for consumers. Their goal is to, as much as they can, uh, make it seem that the marketplaces are doomed to fail. Uh, they think that this is a, a form of negotiating leverage that they have with uh, moderates in, in the Republican Party and with Democrats. Whether that strategy works politically is unclear, but as policy, it's it's hard to view this as anything other than a direct attempt to hamper the markets and to, um, to hurt the ability to cover people. And so you touched on it there, but health insurance companies have said that this could destabilize the insurance market. So is that what you're talking about, where you might see higher premiums, fewer coverage options what is that de what would that destabilization look like for the consumer who's looking to purchase insurance through the marketplace. Yeah, so it's really two issues. So one is uh, the prices that insurance companies are going to charge when people buy their plans, so when they, the premiums that they face. Now, uh, uh, the majority of people who get these marketplace plans do get tax credits. That's part of the Affordable Care Act's way of making coverage affordable. And so those families wouldn't be directly affected by the premium increases. But there are a good number of people who are buying plans without a premium subsidy. These are higher income families. And they would potentially see these 20% or more increases in premiums that are solely attributable to this decision by the Trump administration. Uh, this is separate from any ongoing question about, you know, is there enough competition in the marketplace and, you know, whether the Obamacare was set up in a good way. This is simply the Trump administration has made a decision that is going to force insurers to raise their premiums by 20%, which flies in the face of the president's statement for several months that he wants people to have more options and more affordable care. The, the other possibility would affect uh, a much broader range of people as if, the, if insurance companies simply decide that they're going to stop participating. Uh, this is yet another uh, you know, source of, of stress and uncertainty for the market where insurance companies don't know, are they going to be able to make a profit? Are they going to be able to stay in and keep uh, a customer base and satisfy their consumers? And uh, you know the, the fact that they have to drack up their prices and that they're dealing with uh, potentially more changes down the road from the Trump administration where they think they're going to have trouble uh, staying in the market, it may just be easier for them to say, we're going to turn our back on this. We'll, we'll focus our energy on other things that we do. We sell plans to insure uh, to employers. We've, we sell insurance to uh, Medicaid managed care uh, as Medicaid managed care or a Medicare Advantage. We'll do that. We have enough other business that we can do that will get out of the marketplaces that are uncertain and unreliable. And that means that people will have fewer options. And in some cases, in the extreme, some counties may have no insurers available in the marketplace, in which case there's really no good way for people to get coverage there. The, the second part of this was the executive order that kind of called for this broad new array of health insurance products. And as far as I understand it, they would largely offer less coverage for consumers. So can you explain what that executive order does? And then again, what does that mean for someone who will 
be look we have open enrollment starting in a month or so. So what does that mean for people who are looking to buy insurance? Yeah, this one is a little more uh, down the road in terms of its real world implications. Essentially, what the administration said is they wanted to, uh, it was an executive order instructing the executive branches that are or the uh, departments and agencies that are related to insurance oversight to allow uh, much more permissive. Uh, rules for so-called association plans, association health plans. Basically, association health plans are a way for groups of people to band together and buy insurance, buy health insurance. And this can include, uh, you know, people who are in a community organization or people who are in a particular job guild or a church to, to buy insurance. The issue is that the administration has basically said, we're going to exempt these association plans from most of the requirements of the Affordable Care Act in terms of how health insurance works. Things that actually most consumers are very uh, um, satisfied with under the Affordable Care Act. So for instance, you can't charge people with pre-existing conditions more. Well, that requirement would potentially be out uh, for the association plans. You have to cover essential health benefits in 10 categories, including prescription drugs, um, maternity benefits, mental health those protections could be removed in these association health plans. The overall level of coverage in terms of what percentage of your expenses will be paid for by the health insurer, that could be up in the air. So it remains to be seen exactly how these regulations will get written. This was just the first step in that process. It's also not clear, just because the regulations are out there doesn't mean that there will be a lot of uh, association plans available. But I think what, what some analysts are worried will happen, and some, some of the large insurers have said the same thing, that these, there will be some association health plans. And if the regulations are really permissive, what you're going to see are bare bones plans that really just don't cover very much. And they're going to primarily target young, healthy people for enrollment. Because if you have a lot of health problems, you either might not be able to get a good price for it, or you'd say, well, that, why would I want a plan that's not going to cover anything I need? And that becomes a real risk, again, to then the stability of the marketplaces. Because if all the young and healthy people sign up for these cheap, bare-bones plans, what's left for the people who are trying to buy the Affordable Care Act plans, the ones that do cover pre-existing conditions, the ones that do cover essential health benefits, well, if the only people left in those markets are really sick, again, premiums go way up, and in some cases, insurance companies drop out of the market. So this is a longer-term process that's going to play out over several months or a year or more, um, but the risk is that uh, the protections that many consumers really value in the Affordable Care Act could go away because of the risk of these, uh, the threat of these association health plans. And I want to talk about the timeline, but just a quick aside, because I know a lot of your research has focused on really the health benefits of access to expanded coverage. So are you concerned from that perspective of if you see more of these bare bones plans, we're likely to see some potential negative health effects with people in those plans? I mean, is it possible to kind of offer a prediction of how that could play out? Well, there's not been a lot of research on the health impacts of, you know, higher versus lower cost-sharing plans. I mean, there's some there's a, a classic experiment that was done in the 70s where they looked at plans that were very generous versus less generous. This is the Rand Health Insurance Experiment. And they found actually that for, for middle and higher income families, different cost-sharing didn't make a big difference. Um, but whether that applies to something like a really bare-bones uh, health association plan, I don't think we know. The bigger risk from my perspective is not that some young healthy people will go sign up for these plans, though I think that probably leaves uh, them in bad shape if, if they have an unexpected illness or, or an injury. The bigger risk is that it's the people who have chronic health issues 
if their marketplace essentially uh, destabilizes and goes away or becomes far too expensive for them to afford, that's where you're talking about people who have real medical problems and real need for care who uh, simply lose their the, the insurance that became available to them under the ACA. So, I mean, both aspects of it are troubling, but from the public health perspective, the particular concern is that um, the ACA marketplaces that have been such a valuable option for people who don't get insurance through work and, are, and have incomes too high for Medicaid, that they would no longer have access to a meaningful coverage because the, the markets would essentially crumble. And so at the state level, if there's a state that opposes these moves, I mean, there, is there anything that states can do with their marketplaces? Do they have any options or recourse? On the first issue, the cost-sharing redu- reductions, states have taken different approaches to engaging in this issue, not just now, but well in advance, because for months there's been the question of whether the Trump administration was going to pull these payments. And so in some cases, we know that state regulators essentially told insurance companies, you can submit two different bids. You can tell us what premium you'd like to charge, assuming the co-payments or the cost-sharing payments continue, and a backup option in case they go away. And, And to some extent, that helps with the possibility of plans leaving. If plans have been able to price it in and have gotten assurances in advance that they would be allowed to do this, they're less likely to flee now, but then we still see the big price increases. Uh, In other cases, though, uh, states and and, uh, the insurers are kind of scrambling to figure out what they're going to do now. And um, and, and that is a major challenge for, for insurance regulators as well as the insurers. And then the impact of who bears the burden of that will be patients. The, the second question on the association health plans, the way the regulations are being discussed, states would have very little recourse here because essentially these would be federal regulations that would exempt these plans from not only the Affordable Care Act protections, but in most cases probably state regulation. Uh, so these would be really uh, out of the hands of the traditional state uh, insurance regulators, the, the state legislature, the governor. And so what, what you're seeing in the short term is actually several states are filing lawsuits, uh, in particular right now actually on the cost-sharing subsidies, but we may see something follow suit on the association plans when those regulations become uh, clearer. And essentially what the states are arguing is that uh, this move uh, puts their their marketplaces in severe jeopardy and that uh, Congress never intended for this to be the case. When, it, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, the assumption was these payments would be made. And now the, the fact that the Trump administration is not paying them has thrown this all into potential chaos. And that's the, uh, obviously a major concern for, for states, particularly states that have opened their own marketplaces and have been very um, assertive about trying to implement the ACA in a comprehensive way. In, in both of these cases, it seems like there are some things that are still kind of very much up in the air that still need to be worked through. So what 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 is kind of a timeline here for these changes to either take effect, for there to be lawsuits to play out? I mean, what, what should people keep in mind in terms of just kind of watching as this all plays out? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is open enrollment is, is happening within the next month. So there's not a lot of time for that time frame to, to get sorted out on the cost-sharing subsidies. Every you know state is trying to, in the immediate short term, figure out exactly what this means for the premiums that are offered, what plans are staying in, and that's a state-by-state basis. You really got to read your own local paper to know what's happening with that. The, um, the lawsuits, this is an interesting circumstance because this is already in the courts. It's been, going, it's in, been in the courts for several years, but essentially what's happening now is uh, the White House has, based, has signed off and said, we no longer want to make these payments, whereas under the Obama administration – they were being sued by the House of Representatives. The House said, you don't have the authority to spend this money, and Obama's uh, Department of Justice was saying, we do. 
Uh, now Trump has come in and they're basically saying, no, we don't want to make the payments anyways. And you have a, a third group, which is the state's attorney generals in primarily Democratic leaning states saying, no, we do need these payments. So it's a legally a very uh, unusual circumstance and exactly how this plays out. I, you know, I'm not a legal scholar, but I'm not even sure the legal scholars know yet how this is going to play out. Um, so that, that's up in the air. The other big deadline to watch on this is um, Congress still needs to pass a budget for next year. Uh, and part of that is tied up in the tax uh, bill being debated or the tax uh, potential tax bill being debated in Congress and still the question of whether they're going to revisit the Affordable Care Act. Congress could solve this cost-sharing subsidy issue in a snap. If they passed a bill that said, of course, we meant to make those payments and those payments should be made as long as the ACA is the law of the land, this issue would go away. And the White House, um, you know, would, it wouldn't be up to the Trump administration anymore whether to pay it. It would be very clear in the language of the law. That seems unlikely to happen. It could still happen through a bipartisan compromise, but uh, the indications from Senate leadership and from uh, Paul Ryan's office, the Speaker's office, and from the White House is that they don't really want that to happen. And so that makes it much less likely that that uh, this can make its way through Congress and, and become a law. So the the wrinkle is that Congress also needs to pass a budget, and, and at least most analysts expect that this will require some Democratic votes to accomplish. So some Democrats have said, we're not going to sign any budget that doesn't pay for this. We're not going to allow a budget to go through that continues to sabotage the Affordable Care Act and not make these payments that the insurers need to keep care affordable for middle and lower income families. Whether that's a winning argument, whether Democrats will stand by that, whether they'll, you know, th th they'll achieve some sort of compromise, all up in the air. But that's something that would likely happen in the next two to three months. And so there's plenty of action still to come on this question. What is at stake if this cost sharing doesn't continue, I mean, and lower income Americans are particularly hard, what is at stake for them from a public health perspective? Well, because of the way that these subsidies are set up, again, it's it's an odd thing. The purpose of the subsidies is to make care more affordable for people who have coverage, who are lower and middle income families. But because the insurers have to do that part of it anyways, it's not so much that I worry for the lower middle income families who have coverage through the marketplace. It's my fear is that some of them won't be able to get it anymore if the marketplace is destabilized. And and it's not just the lower and middle income families. It's higher income families who never got the cost sharing subsidies may get squeezed out of the market because the premiums go way up, um, or because the plant you know insurers leave their area. Now the reality is is if this if this is the only remaining kind of shoe to drop uh, in terms of the marketplaces. Probably most parts of the country will continue to have a, a marketplace that has at least some insurance options. The premiums will be much higher than they would have been otherwise. Uh, but most people who want to get coverage, who at least the, the families that get tax credits, will still be able to do so. Some higher income families may say, well, I don't get, a I don't get any help and the premiums just went up 20 percent. I'm going to drop it. Um, there'll be some areas, though, of the country in particular that already only have one or two insurers where they they might drop out and we might see, uh, you know, some what, what are often described as bare counties, you know, counties just with no insurers. And if that becomes a bigger issue, we're going to see swaths of the country where, you know, we have people losing insurance and no real way to, to find another option. And uh, again, given the research that we and others have done on on the implications of coverage, this has real real effects on ability to access care, on how people feel, on chronic disease management, preventive care, and in the long run, uh, potentially even survival. And so I know we've talked a lot about the destabilization of the ACA marketplaces, but I'm interesting, I'd be interested to know if we're likely to see effects just on larger insurance for people who get insurance through their employers. Are they likely to see higher premiums because insurance companies are compensating for what's going on 
in the marketplaces? I mean, are there going to be effects outside of the Affordable Care Act? The cost-sharing subsidy reduction probably doesn't have much impact elsewhere. Uh, there, you know, you could you could potentially see some small spillovers that people who wanted to go in the marketplace now say, well, the marketplace isn't working very well, and so instead I'm going to try to make sure I can find a job that gives me coverage through work. But those are fairly small indirect effects. For most people who get insurance through work, people who are on Medicare or Medicaid, this part probably this part of the Trump's uh, Trump administration's actions probably won't won't have a big impact. Now the health associ or the association health plans is a little bit different because it really depends on how those regulations get written and and who qualifies who, who's allowed to create an association plan. Um, how bare bones can it be? You might see in some cases people leaving employer coverage for these plans if they're much much cheaper, in particular if they're healthier. But that's pretty speculative. It's hard hard to say. And um, and so right now my sense is. This is mostly hitting the beneficiaries who, who have coverage through the marketplace plans. Whether it starts to spill over into other areas, that I think is less likely, but still remains to be seen. I mean, this is kind of just the latest, I guess, for lack of a better word, attack on the ACA. I mean, we've had the repeal and replace effort in Congress. On a really broad scale, what are your thoughts on the future of the ACA? And if you're someone who is relying on the marketplace for coverage, should people be concerned? I mean, what what would be kind of your message to those people? I think they certainly should be concerned. Uh, it has been largely a kind of bargaining chip or theoretical tactical move discussed for you know almost ten months that the administration might stop payments on these cost sharing reductions, but now they've actually done it. Uh, they've pulled the plug. They've uh, put uh, the insurers and the people who rely on them in a position of great uncertainty and uh, the likelihood that uh, that the administration is going to turn the corner at some point and say, well, we tried to repeal it. We didn't get what we wanted. Now let's at least make sure the law works. That seems vanishingly small now. Uh, these, these two moves right back to back seem pretty clearly intended to say, even if Congress can't pass something to change the Affordable Care Act, we have no interest in making it succeed. Uh, and whatever moves we can take that both undermine its ability to cover people uh, and uh, lead to alternatives that, you know, the, the alternative forms of coverage that the ACA had outlawed, they're going to push ahead with. So if you have coverage right now through a marketplace, I think it is much less certain that that will still be there in a year uh, than it was before they made these announcements. And then again, the repeal debate is not dead either. Uh, it was both votes, you know, the, the very kind of high profile votes that the Senate had on this over the past several months were essentially a, a vote or two away. And not all of the objections were the same. Uh, some of the senators voting against it, it were unhappy that it wasn't uh, repealing enough of the Affordable Care Act. Or objections, for instance, very prominently by John McCain, he didn't really object to the content of the bills, he objected to the process. So, it, given that, it seems quite possible that the Senate, with a similar composition down the road, could find a way to repeal it. And then, of course, in 2018, we'll have you know new new elections, and that'll change the composition of the Senate. And um, it's a it's a map that is pretty favorable to the Republicans in terms of the number of seats they're defending versus the number of seats the Democrats are defending. So, if you know if the Republicans pick up two or three more seats, and those are seats that are kind of in the party rank and file, uh, the same repeal bill that failed this year could easily go through. So, there's a lot at stake for people who who care about health policy and who worry about coverage and access. And uh, uh, it's both before leading up to and then uh, aftermath of, of the 2018 elections. That was our interview with Ben Summers about potential changes ahead for the Affordable Care Act. 
And again, if you will be shopping for insurance on the ACA marketplace, open enrollment runs from November 1st to December 15th, which is shorter than past years. If you do need to enroll in an insurance plan, you can visit healthcare.gov. We'll have a link on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. 